Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One night in 1973, Sal Di Fiori woke up to crashing noises in his small Brooklyn home. He glanced next to him and realized his wife wasn't in bed. He got up and headed downstairs to investigate. The sounds were coming from the basement. When Sal walked downstairs, he found his wife, Joyce, writhing on the floor. She told him she had just been visited in a vision by Jesus Christ. And not only that, Christ had left her with the signs of stigmata, wounds similar to the ones he incurred from being nailed on the cross. She held up her red-stained pajamas as proof, but Sal was skeptical. Why would Jesus Christ visit his wife? She was no holy person. She wasn't even Christian. But word of the stigmata spread, and Joyce would soon become the leader of what some would call a new religious movement, and others would call a cult. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Kashi Ashram, founded by housewife Joyce Green, whose charismatic personality has drawn in wealthy celebrity backers, including Arlo Guthrie, Ivana Trump, and Julia Roberts. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Joyce Green founded Kashi Ashram in Sebastian, Florida in 1976. Previously, she had been a Brooklyn housewife and mother who underwent a spiritual awakening after turning to yoga classes for weight loss. 
Eastern religious beliefs, particularly Hinduism, had become popular in America during the counterculture movement of the 1960s, Joyce combined many of them in her new religion, and her charismatic, brash personality drew in dozens of followers. By 1976, Joyce was going by the Hindu name Ma Jaya Sati Bhagavati, though her followers called her Ma Jaya, or even just Ma. At its height, about 200 people lived at Kashi Ashram, though others who didn't live there still considered themselves to be devotees of Ma Jaya. Ma Jaya and her followers became renowned for their community service acts, including providing resources and medical care to the LGBT and HIV-positive community. But Kashi Ashram was also dogged by rumors of abuse and even sexual assault. The most damning stories come from Ma Jaya's own daughter. This week, we'll focus on Joyce Green herself, her background, psyche, and how she went from a young Brooklyn housewife to a respected but controversial spiritual leader. In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Joyce to the cult she founded, known as Kashi Ashram. We'll learn about what drew followers to Kashi Ashram, their beliefs, and its activities today. But for now, let's start at the beginning. Joyce Green was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1940. Her parents were Orthodox Jews and lived near the Coney Island boardwalk. It was a colorful place to grow up. People from nearly every race and background lived nearby, and even more would come to visit the nearby Coney Island amusement park. The Greens were very poor and couldn't even afford enough chairs for their children to sit on around the dining room table. Joyce's father had trouble holding down a job. Joyce's mother supported the family, solely on her salary as a legal secretary. Joyce remembers her mother as loving and supportive, but often at work. So Joyce was on her own quite a bit as a child. She would go hang out with the homeless people under the boardwalk when she was as young as seven. She learned how to smoke cigarettes with the men she met there, whom she considered to be a surrogate family. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Joyce's early neglect by her parents could have had long-lasting effects. Research by Dr. Nathan Fox, who heads the Child Development Laboratory at the University of Maryland, has shown that childhood neglect actually rewires a person's brain, leaving them less likely to form secure emotional attachments later in life. It sounds like it would be difficult to recover from that kind of neglect. With early intervention, recovery is possible, but otherwise the effects can be permanent. In a relationship with a secure emotional attachment, people are open and honest with each other. They see themselves as equals. In a relationship with an insecure attachment, a person can be needy, controlling, and even abusive. They never feel a true and satisfying bond with their partner and never stop searching for that kind of human connection. To compound her loneliness, Joyce's mother died when Joyce was 13 years old. She remembered seeing her mother dying of cancer in the hospital and wondering why such pain and suffering existed in the world. Her mother told her it was impossible to know, that she should turn her focus toward helping people. Her mother pointed out the other people in the hospital who needed help, saying, quote, don't ever feel sorry for yourself. Don't ever say, why me? Look at all these people. Go entertain them, sing for them, visit with them. Don't mope around feeling sorry for yourself, end quote. Joyce considered her mother's death to be the end of her childhood. 
Afterward, her father got inconsistent work on the boardwalk as an entertainer, and the family had to subsist on his meager earnings. The paint on the walls of their small Brooklyn apartment began to peel, revealing black and green mold underneath. There wasn't enough food to go around. And at only 13 years old, Joyce often had to try to earn money herself by doing odd jobs. According to psychiatrist and author Grant Hillary Brenner, the death of a parental figure during childhood can have a myriad of effects on the child. As an adult, the person will be at a higher risk for substance abuse, mood disorders, and is more likely to marry young. Though Joyce's life was tough, she remembered later these experiences as shaping her personality, teaching her to keep a sense of humor and respect people of every race and background. Joyce may have been poor, but she still managed to attract attention. She had tan skin and long black hair that she wore parted down the middle. She had a thick Brooklyn accent and a brash, outspoken attitude. In 1955, 15-year-old Joyce was hanging out at a beach in Brooklyn when she caught the eye of 17-year-old Sal DiFiori. Sal was a young man who lived in the neighborhood. Joyce thought he was an Italian stud. Sal remembered how Joyce's personality made her rise above her humble background. He said, quote, None of her family was like that. They were very poor. You could tell by the clothes she wore. Her father was a loser. End quote. Joyce and Sal married a year later, in 1956, at 16 and 18 years old, respectively. They shared a physical attraction, and Sal loved Joyce's sense of humor. For Joyce, Sal provided a sense of stability that she didn't have in her father's house. And for a while, stability was what she wanted. They stayed in Brooklyn, living in a tiny apartment, and Sal went to work as a Coca-Cola delivery man. Over the next decade, Joyce kept house, cleaning, cooking dinner, and gave birth to three children. Jimmy, the oldest, was born in 1961, followed by Denise and a younger girl we'll call Molly. Molly has given interviews to newspapers in recent years under that name and prefers not to use her real one. While Joyce and Sal were raising their children, outside their door, the counterculture movement of the 1960s was in full swing. Since Joyce would later incorporate some of the movement's lessons into her own teaching, it's important that we understand what was going on. The counterculture movement sprang out of a deep disillusionment with society's cultural and governmental institutions. Before World War II, the United States was in a depression and people had to focus their energies on finding enough money and food to support their families. Afterwards, the U.S. entered a time of prosperity and children born in this era were able to focus on matters outside of pure survival. When the baby boomers reached college age in the 1960s, they began to chafe at what they saw as the overly traditional and materialistic views of their parents. They marched for civil rights, championed feminist causes, and fought for environmental protections. Critics of the counterculture movement, however, derided young people as deadbeats. They thought that hippies were only able to experiment and explore because of the hard work of the generation before them. Members of the counterculture movement also turned away from mainstream religions like Christianity and Judaism, which had an institutionalized way of operating. They favored religions that offered a more direct and personal connection to spirituality, particularly Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. Hinduism was particularly attractive because it didn't possess a single central authority. Joyce Green adopted many Hindu practices and terms into the religion she would later found. 
In general, Hindus consider reaching a state of nirvana, or moksha, to be the ultimate goal in life. Nirvana occurs when the self is united with God and can be reached either through a long journey of yoga, meditation, and other spiritual dedication, or sometimes spontaneously. There are several deities in Hinduism. One is named Kali, the Divine Mother, who would become very important in Joyce Green's life. Kali is both the giver of life and the destroyer. Unlike Christianity, which separates good and evil into God and the devil, Kali encompasses both. She represents life and death, which cannot exist without the other. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson abolished the Oriental Exclusion Act, which had set quotas on immigration from countries considered to be undesirable, like India. Indian gurus were finally able to move to the United States to spread their brand of spirituality. The guru is very important in Hinduism. A guru is a guide or teacher who helps a chela or student along a path of spirituality. It's an intense relationship and can rival that of a parent and child. Chelas can take anyone as their guru, even if they're not alive anymore. For example, a chela could consider Jesus Christ to be their guru. With the influx of gurus and interest in decentralized religion, Hindu beliefs became more commonplace in America. Yoga was embraced by Americans as good exercise, though in Hinduism it is also part of the path to spiritual enlightenment. While Joyce Green sat out for much of the hippie movement of the 60s because she was caring for her family, yoga became her introduction to spirituality. In her early years of her marriage, Joyce struggled with her weight and bouts of depression. One night at dinner, her husband looked at her after she had finished quite a bit of food and sarcastically said, you should eat a little. Joyce was devastated by this comment and resolved to lose weight. A friend told her about yoga classes at a nearby Jack LaLanne gym. In 1972, at the age of 32, Joyce took her first yoga class. Although yoga was mostly separated from its spiritual origins, the class did teach her a technique called pranayama breathing. Pranayama breathing is a series of different breathing exercises meant to regulate mood and increase health, though it can ultimately bring on a trance-like state. One popular exercise is to inhale for four seconds, hold the breath inside for 16 seconds, and then exhale for eight seconds. Joyce loved pranayama breathing so much that she would lock herself in the basement bathroom of her Brooklyn home for hours at a time to practice. It was there that she claims she had her first vision. It started with the sound of something heavy being dragged along the ground, and then Christ appeared, dragging his cross behind him. When he first appeared, Joyce says she told him, what are you doing here? I'm Jewish. When Joyce told her Catholic husband Sal about her vision, he told her, that yoga stuff is voodoo. If you want to see Jesus, come to church with me. But Joyce didn't listen. She kept doing her breathing exercises, and Christ began to appear to her regularly. She told some of the other people in her yoga class, and they believed her visions were real. Word began to spread about the Brooklyn housewife who was having visions, and soon the family's small house would be deluged with interested people. Joyce had stumbled onto the spiritual path in a quest to lose weight, but when people began to raise her up as a saint, she found the power intoxicating. She wasn't about to let go. We'll learn how Joyce amassed a following in just a moment. We took it all. 
We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. In 1972, 32-year-old Brooklyn housewife Joyce Green DeFiori discovered yoga as a means to lose weight. She also found that the breathing exercises she learned in yoga classes could put her into a trance-like state. While practicing those breathing exercises in the family bathroom, Joyce claimed that she had seen visions of Jesus Christ. Word began to spread about a Brooklyn housewife who was having spiritual visitations. Even though it was now the 70s, the counterculture movement was still going strong, and eager hippies descended onto the DeFiori household. These pilgrims were upper-middle-class people, for the most part. They had been raised with material possessions, but still felt empty, and were searching for someone to give their life spiritual meaning. Joyce was happy to play that role. The apartment became overrun with strangers. Sal, Joyce's husband, later recalled his shock. I couldn't believe it. She controlled those people. They were all super-rich kids who were dysfunctional, and they would go to her for guidance. Part of what was drawing people to Joyce was her charisma. Leaders in many fields, from politics to entertainment, can be known for their charisma. Charisma can be a positive trait, but it can also be utilized for more selfish purposes. The trick is knowing when someone's charisma comes from a sense of positivity and self-worth or a narcissistic desire for attention. Professor and counselor Suzanne Deggs-White has studied the difference between the two. One difference she points out is that charismatic leaders can consider their failures and take responsibility for them, while narcissists blame their failures on others. Determining the truth about Joyce's motivations ultimately comes down to whether or not you believe her claim that she was visited by Jesus. Her husband, Sal, certainly didn't believe her. He became even more incredulous about her claims when he heard crashing noises in the apartment one night in 1973. He found his wife in a manic state, claiming that Christ had appeared to her once again. This time, though, she'd been left with stigmata, or wounds on her hands corresponding to the wounds on Christ's hands that he received from being nailed to a cross. Sal didn't buy it. He took the pajamas that she'd been wearing to a dry cleaner who told him that the stains were from theatrical blood. But it didn't matter. Word about the stigmata spread through Joyce's followers and attracted even more people to her. They would live in houses in Brooklyn and Queens together, forming a sort of spiritual network. In one of Christ's visitations to Joyce, he told her an important message. Quote, teach all ways, for all ways are mine. End quote. Joyce interpreted that message to mean that there were multiple ways to reach spiritual enlightenment. In other words, all religions are valid because they all worship the same God. That belief would become a central tenet of her teachings. Now might be a good time to remember that there were three young children living in the DeFiori household. In 1973, Jimmy, the eldest child, would have been 12 years old. It must have been a confusing and chaotic time for the kids, whose house had been overtaken by strangers and whose mother claimed to be visited by Jesus. The chaos would continue for over a year. 
1974, a woman named Hilda Charlton heard about Joyce. She became convinced that Joyce was the real thing and might even be a prophet. Hilda had traveled throughout the world as a modern dancer, beginning in her late teens. When she stopped dancing, she decided to stay in India for 15 years to soak up spiritual knowledge from a number of well-known gurus. When she returned to the United States, she settled in New York City and started teaching small classes on spirituality to pass on the knowledge that she'd learned. Hilda started to accompany Joyce to spiritual gatherings throughout New York that took place in churches, parks, and basements. Before Joyce would appear, Hilda would hype her up, telling tales about Joyce's stigmata and visions. She would go around the groups whispering, a saint is coming, a saint is coming. Through a combination of Hilda's excitement and Joyce's innate charisma, Joyce was able to win people over incredibly quickly. Her effect on people at this time cannot be overstated. Listen to these accounts from followers of the first time they met her. Quote, I just remember that moment of seeing her for the first time and how it opened everything inside of me, including my head, and I really kind of like fell in love with her, not really knowing what she was, end quote. Quote, the door opened and she came in and I went, wow. I just felt her essence and it was almost as if I was hit somehow. She turned around as if she felt something also and she saw me in the back of the room and I fell madly in love with her right then. End quote. quote, I walked into the office and she said, come sit in front of me and look at my eyes. And I just looked in her eyes for five minutes without closing my eyelashes. And at the end, I knew she was the divine mother, end quote. Quote, she walked in and sat down and called me up to sit down in front of her. I just looked at her and she looked at me and I felt like I'm home, home. Everything was completed, and at the same time, knowing I had years and years of work to do, love was pouring out of her, like a golden liquid, like liquid gold." End quote. Before long, Joyce would claim to be visited by another spiritual advisor. She said that she didn't know his name, but when she described him to Hilda, Hilda identified him as Neem Karoli Baba. He was a Hindu guru who had died the previous year. Neem Karoli had lived in India his entire life. He became known in the U.S. because Americans would visit him and then carry his teachings back home. He had two main ashrams in India, which are essentially monasteries for Indian religions. Ashrams are usually constructed away from busy urban centers, where people can go for spiritual retreat and often learn yogic and meditative practices. In Joyce's vision, Neem Karoli asked what she wanted to do with her life. Joyce claims, I said I wanted to serve all. He tapped my forehead three times and showed me the universe. Joyce claimed that this moment was the unlocking of her kundalini. In Hinduism, the kundalini is a primal energy that lies at the base of the spine, like a coiled snake. When it's unlocked, the snake uncoils, moving through the body and to the head. When it reaches the head, spiritual enlightenment is attained. Some people experience this phenomenon after years of spiritual practice, but Joyce said she experienced it spontaneously. Joyce also said that Neem Karoli had given her a new name. It's common for people who convert to Hinduism to take on a new Hindu name so that their name lines up with their new religious beliefs. The new name that Joyce took was Ma Jaya Sati Bhagavati. Going forward, we'll refer to Joyce as Ma Jaya, which is what her followers called her. 
The meaning of her name is significant. Ma means mother, or universal mother, depending on the context. Jaya means victory. Sati has several meanings, including chaste woman and purity. Bhagavati can mean follower of the fortunate and is also an honorific title used when addressing a goddess. With Hilda introducing Ma Jaya to new circles, her influence grew. She was able to amass a couple hundred followers spread throughout New York City. She would soon get a stamp of approval from an even more important figure in the counterculture movement, Ram Das. Ram Das, whose birth name was Richard Alpert, was born in Massachusetts in 1931. Like Ma Jaya, he was born to a Jewish family, but didn't feel spiritually connected to the religion. He followed a rather traditional path, attending a college and later receiving his Ph.D. in psychology from Stanford University. He got a tenure-track position at Harvard, where he began teaching in 1958. Alpert studied human consciousness at Harvard, and his studies connected him with several other influential professors there who were interested in studying the effects of the drug LSD. The counterculture movement was spreading across college campuses, bringing with it drugs and questions about their effects. LSD, or acid, can produce vivid auditory and visual hallucinations. Users also report out-of-body experiences and the sense that they've come into contact with God or some greater spiritual being. Alpert and another psychology professor named Timothy Leary decided to conduct experiments on LSD by administering it to undergraduate students at Harvard. Ultimately, they were in search of a way to achieve permanent enlightenment, or nirvana. Although Leary and Alpert professed to be doing these experiments for scientific purposes, they seemed to lack any formal documentation and sometimes didn't even use control groups. Leary and Alpert were warned by the Harvard administration to stop their experiments, but Alpert didn't. In 1963, he was found to still be providing drugs to students and was fired. Alpert had gained some wealthy fans of his drug experiments while at Harvard and was able to continue his studies via a private foundation for the next several years. In 1967, in search of further spiritual enlightenment, he decided to travel to India. There, he met guru Neem Karoli Baba, the same guru who visited Ma Jaya in her trances. At this point, though, Neem Karoli was still alive, and it was he who gave Alpert the name Ram Das, which means servant of God. In 1971, Ram Das returned to America and wrote about his journey in a book called Be Here Now. It included stories about his time at Harvard, his guru Neem Karoli, and information about how to practice yoga. It became a bestseller and a sort of Bible for people in search of spirituality. It also made a celebrity out of Ram Das. To date, Be Here Now has sold over two million copies. By 1974, Ram Das had a full schedule of teaching engagements and touring, but his guru, Neem Karoli, had died, and he felt spiritually adrift. He decided to go to New Hampshire, where he would stay in a cabin for a month to meditate and clear his head. He passed through New York and called an old friend to say hello. That old friend was Hilda Charlton, who told him there was a woman in Brooklyn that he had to meet. At first, Ram Dass wanted to continue with his plan to be alone for a while. But Hilda told him that Neem Karoli, Ram Dass's dead guru, was sitting with this woman in her basement. Ram Dass decided he had to meet her. 
When Ram Das first entered Ma Jaya's home with Hilda, he found Ma Jaya in what he thought was samadhi, a state of consciousness in which one is completely in the moment. He said, I could find no breath or pulse. She was like a rock. She was a very unusual looking woman. She has long false eyelashes, heavy mascara, and a low-cut dress. Finally, she came out of it, looked at me, and said, What do you want? Ram Das was impressed with her directness because he thought it proved that she wasn't trying to put on the act of a holy person. She then seemed to channel Neem Karoli and started to discuss things with Ram Das that only he would know about, like the upkeep of his ashram in India. Ram Das was convinced that Ma Jaya really was a spiritual leader, and in the winter of 1974, he moved to Brooklyn to study with her. Ram Das's presence with Ma Jaya gave her an important stamp of legitimacy. He would help gather even more followers to her side, making her one of the preeminent spiritual leaders in New York. By the time Ram Das was done with her, Ma Jaya's devotees believed her to be a saint, or maybe even the reincarnation of a god. And they were willing to sacrifice anything to follow her. We'll hear how Ma Jaya's followers sacrificed for her in a moment. Now, back to the story. By the winter of 1974, Ma Jaya, formerly Joyce Green, had gathered hundreds of followers. More importantly, she had been given a sort of stamp of approval by two well-known figures among the post-60s hippie crowd, Hilda Charlton, a British mystic, and Ram Das, a former Harvard professor turned Hindu and best-selling author. Ram Das would report seeing Ma Jaya in trances in which she would make up beautiful poetry on the spot and also channel dead spiritual leaders like Lao Tzu and Moses' father-in-law. Ram Das considered Ma Jaya to be his new teacher, and more people flooded into Brooklyn to learn from this former housewife. The two would build each other up. Ram Das was known to say that Ma Jaya was the Divine Mother and the only enlightened spiritual being in the West. And Ma Jaya would reply, My only role is to pave the way for Ram Das, who is going to become a world spiritual leader. Ram Das also told people that Ma Jaya bled from the mouth as some sort of continuation of her stigmata. He told people that she would bleed up to a quart of blood per day. It's impossible to know whether Ma Jaya believed these lies about herself or not. Author and psychologist Dr. Stephen Johnson describes a narcissist as someone who has buried his true self-expression in response to early injuries and replaced it with a highly developed, compensatory, false self. It's possible that Ma Jaya believed enough in this false self that she thought the lies were true. It seems as though Ram Dass knew he was lying, at least. Although we don't know whether that was because he had been pressured by Ma Jaya into lying or because he liked the attention he got from being with her. Throughout this time, Ma Jaya never changed her appearance or personality to fit what people thought a holy person should be. She still spoke with a strong Brooklyn accent, swore often, and wore lots of jewelry and low-cut tops. Ram Das would also show some surprising personality traits for a holy man. According to a disillusioned follower named Peter Simon, who lived with Ram Das in a group home in California, Ram Das would be uptight and angry in private and turn into a peaceful holy man in public. Peter Simon also observed some troubling characteristics among Ram Das's followers. When Ram Das would teach a class on breathing, 
Students were praised for going into a trance-like state in which their bodies would stiffen. Simon felt that many of the students faked this effect to stay in Ram Dass's good graces. Ram Dass would later describe the time he spent with Ma Jaya in Brooklyn, beginning in the winter of 1974 and lasting throughout 1975 as being incredibly intense. Ma Jaya was known for needing very little sleep, which her followers chalked up to her great spiritual energy. Her followers were expected to keep up with her, meaning they often got only a few hours of sleep per night. Ram Dass also found it difficult to disagree with Ma Jaya in any way. Even when what she said went against common sense, Ma Jaya had a way of convincing Ram Dass that what she was saying was correct. If Ram Dass was being especially difficult, Ma Jaya would have one of her other followers tell him that his distrust was causing her to bleed from the mouth. Ram Dass did enjoy some aspects of his time with Ma Jaya, saying, mixed with the melodrama were hours of the most incredible meditations, much discipline, and practice of pranayama, great outpourings of devotion and prayer and song, and lectures in which Ma Jaya appeared to read from an invisible blackboard and share great truths. Even though Ram Das claims to have been conflicted in his devotion to Ma Jaya, he still spread positive stories about her and helped to grow her following. In 1975, Ma Jaya came up with a new claim. She began to say that she was the Hindu goddess Kali herself, and also many other gods including the Greek goddess Artemis. According to psychologist and author Dr. Tracy Stein, having an overinflated or grandiose sense of self is one of the main hallmarks of a narcissist. Ma Jaya, who claimed to be an actual god, certainly seems to fit that criteria. Another sign of a narcissist is coming across as charming and charismatic. From what we hear her followers say about their first impressions of Ma Jaya, it seems clear that she had charisma in abundance. But that wasn't the only questionable story about herself that Ma Jaya told her followers. She also told them that her husband once had her committed to an insane asylum where doctors incorrectly diagnosed her with a brain tumor. There's no record of this hospital visit, and Ma Jaya would never allow any of her students to speak to the doctors she claimed had observed her, but she said this trauma explained why she would panic every time she heard sirens. On another occasion, Ma Jaya said she had taken on another person's cancer for them, so her body now had many malignant tumors growing in it. But through the constant praying of herself and her students, she reported that she was miraculously cured. Both of these stories seemed designed to increase the idea that she was a martyr for her spiritual cause, despite not always being understood by those around her. She also reportedly had a difficult time staying in her own body. At any moment, she would go stiff and into a trance. Her followers spent much of their time trying not to lose Ma Jaya in this manner, because she claimed that returning from that state to her normal consciousness felt like being cut with a thousand razor blades. Ma Jaya's fits ensured that her followers' attention would always be on her and kept them in a state of insecurity. These fits also had a more concrete outcome. Hilda had bought Ma Jaya a special necklace with a jewel that she had blessed, and usually if Ma Jaya would touch this charm, she would return from her trance. But Ma Jaya said there was another way that she could be prevented from leaving her body. She could be weighed down by gold bracelets. So she began to wear dozens of them on each wrist. Of course, her followers were supposed to buy these bracelets for her. 
and since she claimed that any impurities would burn her skin, the gold had to be at least 18 carat. At one point, Ram Das bought Majaya a $1,200 gold bracelet in an attempt to save her from her painful trances. He also bought her an $800 ring with a lapis lazuli scarab. It sounds outlandish, but Majaya claimed that she needed the ring to protect her from a group of Tibetans who were going to try to kidnap her and bring her back to their mountainous home so that they could worship her. And her followers believed her. Throughout the beginning of 1975, when Ram Das and Ma Jaya were teaching together in Brooklyn, their students began to observe aspects of their relationship that made them uneasy. Both teachers taught and supposedly observed a practice called Brahmacharya. Brahmacharya is a practice in Hindu and other Indian religions of celibacy before marriage and fidelity within marriage. It's meant to focus a student's energy away from sex and toward a spiritual journey guided by their guru. But Majaya and Ram Das seemed a little too close. They were observed showing each other casual physical attention and flirting. Majaya would later claim that nothing happened between her and Ram Das. Ram Das was much more circumspect. He wouldn't outright deny that he and Majaya had a sexual relationship. He only said that he didn't want to disrespect Majaya's husband, Sal, to whom she was still married. In the summer of 1975, Ram Das's doubts about Majaya grew. He had seen her grow an inflated sense of self through the last year he had spent with her, and was particularly troubled when she ended her relationship with Hilda Charlton, who had first helped her rise to popularity. This move seemed to be born out of a need to concentrate power solely around herself. Ram Das also witnessed her lying in person. Many times he had called Majaya on the phone, only for her to tell him that she was in a trance-like state and couldn't talk. One day he was spending time with her and she picked up the phone when it rang and said, I can't talk now, I'm too stiff. Remember, she would often go stiff in her trances. Ram Das realized that she could have been lying to him when he would call as well. He began to try to withdraw himself from the group. Ma Jaya did not react well to his departure. Author and UCLA professor Dr. Judith Orloff has studied how narcissists will strike back if they feel that they're being abandoned. She says that narcissists will use every tool at their disposal to punish the person leaving them. Narcissists fear being exposed as frauds more than anything, so they'll do whatever it takes to prevent that from happening. To her followers, Majaya framed Ram Das's leaving as resistance to her teachings. They needed to get him to return to the fold for his own good. It became their mission to get Ram Das to return to Majaya. Ram Das said of this time, quote, For almost four months, I had to live as if in a state of siege, refusing to answer the telephone, which rang day and night. If a call happened to get through, I would be told by one of her well-meaning devotees that Majaya lay bleeding and dying because of my infidelity, end quote. At one point, Majaya and her followers tried to break into Ram Das's apartment. The management of his building had to call the police who arrested Ma Jaya as she was trying to kick down Ram Das's door. Finally, Ma Jaya seemed to realize Ram Das would never return to her and left him alone. Ram Das connected with other people who had left Ma Jaya's circle of influence, including some who had essentially acted as servants in her home. They realized how often they had been asked by Ma Jaya to lie to each other. 
to report that she was in some crisis in order to get the other person to behave the way she wanted. They saw the similarities between Majaya's group and other quasi-religious groups that had grown out of the counterculture movement, like Hare Krishna and the Munis. Some of Majaya's closest confidants also revealed to Ram Das that her amazing spiritual energy, which allowed her to stay awake for long periods of time, actually came from taking energy pills. Ram Das confessed that he had never actually seen Majaya bleed quarts of blood from her mouth. Only once he had been allowed into the bathroom to see the reported phenomenon. And all he had witnessed was Majaya, quote, spitting up a pinkish liquid. She spit into a tissue and wouldn't let me look at it, end quote. It's clear that Ram Das lied on behalf of Ma Jaya, whether he did it because he enjoyed the attention he got by being at her side, or if he was pressured into doing it, we'll never know. In September of 1975, Ram Das decided to make his side of the story clear. He wrote an article for Yoga Journal, a popular periodical among the spiritual set, entitled Egg on My Beard. In it, he claimed that Ma Jaya's rise to prominence had been based on a web of grandiose lies. He also wrote, the intensity of the staging and the props created a reality which made me ready to believe the bizarre assertion that a Jewish housewife and mother of three was in fact Ms. Big, the creative force of the universe. I and several hundred others were seduced into this fantasy by her combination of powerful charisma and chutzpah. Ram Dass's story created a schism within Majaya's followers. Surprisingly, the majority elected to stay with her. She claimed that she was happily married, and Ram Dass was just upset because she wouldn't sleep with him. Either way, Majaya seemed to sense that the writing was on the wall. She needed to get out of Brooklyn. But in doing so, Ma, the mother, abandoned her own children. Next episode, we'll see the heartbreaking ramifications of Ma Jaya's actions on her children. We'll also discuss disturbing claims of abuse and kidnapping that continue to haunt Kashi Ashram. While the cult has attempted to silence its critics, it's difficult to ignore the most damning testimony from Ma Jaya's own daughter. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back to continue this story next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Aidan Connolly, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Claire Epstein and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> <laughs>